Previously on 90210. I don't care what the military says. I do. I'm, I'm supposed to make the decision. Fort Bragg is a big deal. We won two world wars. Nobody even knows General Bragg. We won two world wars. Go to that community where Fort Bragg is in a great state. I love that state. Say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? What are you going to name it, Chris? Tell me what you're going to name it. So there's a whole thing here. We won two world wars. Two world wars, beautiful world wars. When the city of Gotham had a real difficult challenge, one of the things that the mayor there did is he called out and he sent out the distress signal to Batman. So we are doing something similar for the census. And I'm happy to report, I'm calling out the census cowboy. So, if you see the census cowboy coming to your neighborhood, that's not a good thing. That means you gotta step up and do your- People of Earth, how are you? Broadcasting live to tape from the soon-to-be-demolished Society Theater in the dirtiest city in the world, outside of Italy, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the podcast of a world gone mad. This is the Society Show. You know, we're living in a society. On today's episode... There's, as usual, a lot going on in the world today. We will dig deep into the news you've heard about and some news you've missed. With a special focus on the news you missed. That's why this is the best news show around. But in this episode, some of the biggest news is happening right here in the Society Show Theater. Big changes are coming. The show will be taking a very brief hiatus. I'm moving across the country from Philadelphia to Seattle. The new society show the new society show theater is being constructed in Seattle as we speak. And the show is going to get a major upgrade after the move. I'll be recording more often, hopefully get a better microphone. I'll give some details about that at the end of the show. But, for the actual substance of the show, we've got a couple stories. First, Turkey plans on turning the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul from a museum into a mosque. We'll look into the international reaction and the historical context for this decision. Also, a far-right politician was arrested due to alleged ties to a series of murders in the mid-2000s. 
I'll go into this case that many are claiming is politically motivated. I will also go into the New York Times terrible coverage of this. Those are the two big stories, but we have much, much more. This is The Society Show. Society. One thing I want to talk about before I get into the news stories, I just want to say two things. One, since the show is going to take a brief hiatus, what I have been doing is uploading all of the society show episodes those actually have already been uploaded to youtube so upload i uploaded those to youtube then i started uh breaking up the shows into segments and i've also uploaded most of those to youtube by the time you're hearing this they should all be up or very close to being put up. Clap if you understand what I'm saying. The other thing I wanted to comment on the same vein, not long ago we had a segment on this show where I talked about 5G coronavirus conspiracy theories. I talked about how in the Netherlands, a Dutch man who believed in coronavirus 5G conspiracy theories burned down telecommunication poles. Fire! 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 <laughs> I was very explicit about why I think 5G coronavirus conspiracy theories are stupid. I mean, it doesn't take much to say. The clip was like three minutes long. I didn't have that much to say because they're just stupid theories. Turn the friggin' frogs gay! And then get this, I uploaded a clip of that to YouTube. It was titled something like Dutch Arsonist Dutch 5G COVID Conspiracy Theorist Burns Down Telecommunication Polls. The video had been up there not long, maybe like a dozen views, I don't even know, maybe less than that. It wasn't one of the most watched views on my channel. And then about a week later, YouTube tells me it was removed because I was releasing things that contradicted the WHO, which was completely untrue. I appealed it. They denied my appeal, didn't have anything to say about it. I told them basically everything I just told you, listener. And I just want to get this out of the way because... Look, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but a lot of people online have been freaking obsessed with cancel culture right now. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny! Which is like the most dull thing to talk about, in my opinion. Dull as hell. Um, and I just want to say, that's what real canceling looks like. YouTube taking your content down. And, and I... The, and you may be saying, well, you're not a big deal. Like, you're you're not freaking... How can you pretend to be, like, oppressed by, by so-and-so YouTube, blah, blah, blah. I'm not pre pretending, and it's not really about me. I'm just saying there are literally thousands of people who are canceled by YouTube all the, day, all the time, and we will never hear about it. We won't even know they existed. That's all I gotta say about cancel culture right now. I just, that, that got in my craw, and, uh, 
Uh, wow, this show, I think uh, this show has some big potential because already the big guns are out from YouTube. Headshot. Anyway, um, so I'm going to talk about those two stories I mentioned earlier, but first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. I like to start the show with a segment called The Facts and Logic Report, where I talk about some news from around the world. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. The Supreme Court ruled that about half of the land of Oklahoma is Native American land. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in the opinion, quote, Today we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word, end quote. Give me a hell yeah! The Muscogee Creek Nation released a statement that said, quote, The Supreme Court today kept the United States' sacred promise to the Muscogee Creek Nation of a protected reservation. Today's decision will allow the nation to honor our ancestors by maintaining our established sovereignty and territorial boundaries. Pay the court a fine or serve your sentence. The mayor of Seoul, Park Won Soon, spoke at a news conference on July 8th about his vision to create jobs and fight climate change in a post-pandemic world. Part of his broader, socially conscious campaign that also called for building a city that was more innovative and safer for women. The same day, one of his secretaries accused him of sexual harassment. She said the mayor made unwanted physical contact and sent sexually suggestive, dehumanizing texts to her on the encrypted messaging service Telegram, usually late at night. The next day, Mayor Park called in sick. At his desk in the mayor's house, he wrote a note to his family asking them to cremate his body and scatter the ashes around the graves of his parents. The note said, quote, I'm sorry to everyone, and I thank everyone who has been with me in my life. I remain always sorry to my family, to whom I've only brought pain. Goodbye, everyone, end quote. Bye-bye, bitches. Hours later, the mayor was found dead, presumably by suicide, in the mountainside surrounding Seoul. We got enough problems with South Korea with trade. Both the Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and Bolivian coup government President Janine Añez have tested positive for coronavirus. <coughs> Thailand approved a draft bill that would give same-sex unions many of the same benefits as those of heterosexual marriages. 
The bill avoids the term marriage, but allows for the legal registration of same-sex partnerships. The bill still needs to be passed by Parliament to become law, but social activists say that the biggest hurdle was approval by Thailand's cabinet, which is a stronghold of retired military generals and tradition-bound political elders. When I was in the third grade, I thought that I was gay because I could draw. I also want to point out that there's been really big protests going on in Thailand. There was one, so I'm recording this Sunday. It'll probably go up Wednesday. Last night, there was a bunch of big protests there. Um, I don't have anything really to say about it. I'm not prepared to talk about it, but uh, that's worth looking into if you're curious about Thai politics right now. The next story, a bus driver in France was beaten up by passengers who refused to wear mandatory face masks. The attack left the bus driver partially brain dead and the family agreed to end life support. Four men were arrested and detained for the, the attack. Fucking assholes! An explosion was heard in western Tehran and electric power was cut in the suburbs surrounding the blast. It was the third reported explosion in Iran in three weeks. All three reported explosions happened between midnight and 3 a.m. I will add, however, that recent reporting suggests this may not have even happened. Um, this explosion. So don't take my word on it. There's either a slew of explosions going on at military, nuclear, and electric power plants um, in Iran, or there's misreporting, or there's maybe like one. I don't even know. I don't know what to think of this. I'm just saying what's reported, but it may not actually have happened. Um, but here's what the actual reporting says, at least. The first two explosions occurred at key military bases, military bases and nuclear facilities. Iran hasn't disclosed the results of its investigation into the explosion. However, a member of the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, said that explosives were used and a Middle Eastern intelligence official, I don't know who that is, that, and I, I included this for information, but I, as you may know, I am extremely dubious when anything is attributed to an intelligence official. But a Middle Eastern intelligence official uh, claimed Israel was responsible for one of the attacks, the one at the nuclear complex. Uh, if there wasn't, if the show wasn't going to take a hiatus, then I would definitely follow up on this next episode. If it becomes bigger news, I will definitely talk a lot about this when I return from hiatus. But uh, there's just a ton of explosions and or disinformation about explosions coming from Iran. So I don't know what to think of that. Bomb armed. 
Dozens of U.S. Marines at two bases on the southern Japanese island of Okinawa have been infected with the coronavirus in what is feared to be a massive outbreak. The governor of Okinawa, Denny Tamaki, said, quote, Okinawans are shocked by what we were told by the U.S. military. We now have strong doubts that the U.S. military has taken adequate disease prevention measures, end quote. My bum is on the cheese! Bum is on the cheese! If I get lucky, I'll get a disease! Tamaki demanded transparency in the latest development and said he planned to request talks between the U.S. military and Okinawan officials. He said Okinawan officials also asked the Japanese government to demand that the U.S. provide details, including the number of cases, and step up preventive measures on the base. Governor Tanaki, like the majority of Okinawans, were already long opposed to U.S. military occupation of their land due to, you know, noise pollution and, of course, the high crime rates that Americans are known to export. One, one detail I'll add about this, I like to bring this up a lot because it's funny and it really paints a different picture of what Americans think about American troops. When I was in college, I studied abroad in South Cor in Seoul, South Korea, uh, at a university called Yonsei University. It's a really prestigious school in Korea. I'm very lucky to have studied there. I probably, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have been able to if it wasn't a, an exchange student for like a truncated term. Because I wasn't, like, the best student. It's like an Ivy League school for Korea. I graduated from anger management the same way I graduated from Cornell. Anyway, that's besides the point. When I was doing the study abroad orientation, they emphasized a few things to us that were very peculiar. They were like, you, if you're, especially if you're white, you and American... You, well, especially if you're white, you will be perceived as an American. If you are a white American, they said, try to make yourself seem like an English teacher. Because the, people will either assume you're an English teacher or you're U.S. military. If you're an English teacher, they won't care. If you're military, people might, uh, you know, say something like, Yankee, go home. Or they might, you know, get aggressive at you. And that was, like, maybe not shocking. It wasn't shocking at all, although I was young and naive. But it's just like, whoa, they're just straight up telling us, please don't act like U.S. military or bad things might happen to you. Um, and I can't blame them, honestly. Especially with shit like this. This is one of the biggest outbreaks in Japan because of the stupid freaking military. Currently, the U.S. military plans to move one of their air force bases to a less populated part of Okinawa. And Okinawans heavily oppose this. Um, 
because well, you'd think, oh, they're moving away from civilization. They'll move it to another part of the island. The issue is it would further spread the military throughout the the prefecture even more. It's like a bacteria spreading. And Okinawans want the U.S. military more equally distributed throughout throughout Japan, not just in Okinawa. So that's that's kind of what's going on there. I don't know. The U.S. military really uh, makes itself look like crap. Let's leave it at that, shall we? Yankee, go home. Sudan is in a transitional state after after their former president. Omar al-Bashir was deposed in 2019 after 30 years of rule. Now, Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok has replaced several ministers in response to widespread protests. Following these government shakeups, several laws have been changed in Sudan. PM Abdallah Hamdok is a technocrat and generally liberal and the head of government. However, the head of state is still a temporary council, which includes several military leaders. So there's a still a conflict within the government. But in the aftermath of the shakeups, the government criminalized female genital mutilation. They also legalized alcohol for non-Muslims and got rid of laws that made leaving Islam punishable, potentially punishable by death so good for them oh good for you twitter shares surged nearly 12 percent after the company posted a job listing saying that it is building a subscription platform the job listing said quote this is a first for twitter griffin is a team of web engineers who are closely collaborating with the payments team and the twitter.com team, end quote. Then Twitter stocks took a big drop after multiple large Twitter accounts were hacked by Bitcoin people before ultimately kind of bouncing back. So we'll see what Twitter's new subscription service is. I'm very skeptical about it and I definitely won't pay for Twitter. I'll have to find somewhere new on the internet to spend a lot of my time, but I will not be paying for Twitter. Large Twitter followings. And that about wraps it up. This was the Facts and Logic Report. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Let's get into... Some of my bigger stories. I'm going to start talking about Hagia Sophia. Because that is the real geopolitically potent thing in our global society. Society. The other story about Russia is a little bit more niche. But I I just have a lot of nitpicks I want to make about it. Um... That's why I'm focusing in on it, but I think it should be illuminating. Um, the Erdogan administration in Turkey 
has formally made the decision to convert Hagia Sophia from a museum into a mosque. Last episode, I reported that Erdogan was considering it, and Mike Pompeo warned against it, to which Turkey told him to screw off, basically. Uh, let me read some of the international reactions to this decision, then I can get more into, you know, historical context, what I think about it. UNESCO, the organization that designates World Heritage Sites, called the decision and lack of decision, quote, regrettable. You'll regret this. The World Council of Churches said the decision will, quote, inevitably create uncertainty, uncertainties, suspicions, and mistrust, end quote. That's really vague. I don't. I guess they mean Christians will be uncertain, suspicious, and mistrustful of the Turkish government, maybe. But like, most Western Christians already have a monolithic view of Muslims. It doesn't matter if they're from Turkey or Azerbaijan or Iran or Qatar or Egypt or. Even Indonesia, Pakistan, that's all a monolith to the Christian West anyway, so I don't really get what that means. A bunch of Eastern Orthodox groups and leaders condemned it as well. Here's a funny statement for you. Um, I think it's funny, the way it's worded. Pope Francis said, quote, I think of Santa Sophia and I am very pained, end quote. In response to the Pope criticizing the decision, Omer Chelik, uh, I think that's how you, Omer Chelik, spokesman for Erdogan's political party, the AKP, pulled out a deep cut and he said that the papacy, the, the Pope, was responsible for the greatest disrespect done to the site. During the 13th century Roman Catholic Fourth Crusades sack of Constantinople, during which the cathedral was pillaged. Headshot. Got <laughs> Iran gave lukewarm approval to the change, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about Iran later on, how Iran pertains to Turkey, but. They basically emphasized it was a domestic issue that doesn't pertain to Iran. The Arab Maghreb Union, which includes, you know, several North African countries, it's... The Maghrebs is like a... Well, I know, like, it's like an Arab word for where Berbers live, and so... It includes Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Mauritania... Maybe Morocco, I'm not sure. It doesn't include Egypt. It does not include Egypt. Um, I don't have a map up, so I don't remember exactly. But the Arab Maghreb Union, which includes several North African countries, supported the change. The Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas supported the change. And as you'd imagine, the bitter and vindictive Greek-Turk rivalry continues. I'm confronting though. I'm not getting talked about anymore. So we're going to play this game where you're going to try to blow my game up here. Let me say your truth. Let's go. You want to tango? Let's tango. The Prime Minister of Greece released a statement that said, quote, 
Greece condemns in the most intense manner the decision of Turkey to convert Hagia Sophia into a mosque. This is a choice which offends all those who also recognize the monument as a world heritage site. And of course, it does not only affect relations between Turkey and Greece, but its relations with the European Union, end quote. There's plenty more international reactions, but you get the basic idea. Christian countries and institutions oppose the move, while Muslim countries and institutions generally like it. In Italy, there was a small protest against the move, demanding that Turkey not be allowed into the EU. In East Jerusalem, nine Israelis burned a Turkish flag outside of the Turkish consulate. The group, calling itself the Jeru Jerusalem Initiative, is made up of Christians and Jews and includes at least one person from the Israeli army. I couldn't find anything more about this group, but from all those details you can imagine, they're pretty anti-Muslim. Um... <laughs> Here's a funny story about it. I'm quoting from Anadolu Agency, which, if you don't know, is a Turkish news agency that explains the kind of glowing tone, but it, it is a funny story. Quote, Mauritanian people on Saturday rejoiced as the news that historic Hagia Sophia will open as a mosque. In the capital of Mauritania, Nuakchot, Prayers were offered as the news came that Hagia Sophia will be open for prayers. Here's the real crazy part. A group in Nuakchot said they sacrificed a camel to celebrate the Turkish court. Wow, that's a, that's a jumbled mess. Turkish court verdict, end quote. So they sacrificed the camel for that. That's pretty crazy. Um, crazy. Now, I want to share what I think about this personally, but I think it's really more important if I give context on Turkey first. That is part of the show, after all, is illuminating context that is usually grazed over when things are reported in in the mainstream media. I've actually been slowly reading a book on the 2016 Turkey uh, attempted coup. So I've gotten some details about Turkey that your average news story won't devote much time to talking about. So let's start from the beginning. Okay. The Republic of Turkey was founded in 1923. Blah, 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 blah. So it was founded under the state ideology called... I've read this word a million times, but I don't know how to say it. Camelism? And that's what I... Camelism. Camelist. K-E-M-A-L-I-S-M. Camelism is named after the first president of Turkey, Kamil Ataturk. The ideological foundations of Camelism includes... Nationalism, republicanism, and radical secularism. And that kid with a backpack said radical. I say radical. That's my thing that I say. I feel like I'm gonna explode here. Ugh. I mean, imagine telling your 
just any regular old Islamophobe that a foundational tenet of Turkey is a secularism that is even more secular secular than United States secularism, it'd blow their freaking mind, dude. Or am I so sane that you just blew your mind? They, they could not believe it. And the reason I say radical secularism is because the Turkish understanding of secular is even more aggressive than what, you know, what you call the separation of church and state in the United States. In Turkey, the Kemalists in power actively try to squash religious influence in politics at all. For the most part, the line of this thought is that religion is 100% a private affair. And, I mean, that's kind of how we see it in the U.S., but, for example, the president is always talking about God this, God that. Name, name a president, they were talking about it. That would be heavily stigmatized in Turkey. But some Kemalist actors in Turkey also, they're so nationalistic that they have also wanted the state to kind of consume and incorporate religion on some level and turn religion more into a explicit state apparatus rather than an implicit one. Religion. Turkey borrowed the French conception of secularism, <laughs> which, you know, as I said, is more hostile to religion and politics mixing compared to the U.S. For example, the U.S. tends to let people wear whatever religious garb they want at public schools, whereas French secularism does not allow that. Another element of Kemalism revolves around ethnic Turks and expansionism. Kemalism is opposed to expanding Turkey and respects national sovereignty. This is in juxtaposition with the Ottoman Empire, which was very interested in expanding territory, especially into lands claimed by ethnically Turkish people, and they were also involved and interested in Turkifying other groups, you know, like in the Balkans. That's the most clear example for Europeans or Westerners because we know the Balkans. Albanians, what? They're not Turkish, but there were, you know, points in Ottoman history where they were trying to hegemonically import Turkish cultural things to other parts of the Ottoman Empire. At the foundation of Kemalist Turkey is they're not really concerned with ethnic Turks outside of Turkey. It, it is a very nation-state dependent ideology. It's the type of ideology you would expect to develop in the aftermath of World War One when um, nationalism as we know it had already started being exported around the world. It's the natural development. Um, and then one other thing I want to say about Kemalism is it's very hardcore centralized. Like, you're not hardcore. 
unless you live hardcore. The president of the country has the authority to turn a park in Istanbul into a shopping mall. Which, actually, if you follow Turkish news, you would know Erdogan wanted to do that in Istanbul in 2013. And that's not exactly part of the ideology. Um, there's nothing in Kamalist tenants that are like, oh, we want a really centralized and powerful central government. But that that sort of political tool that like that function has helped enable Kamalis in the Turkish government fast forward a little bit and by a little bit I mean like 80 years to the early 2000s the AKP aka the AK party aka in English the Justice and Development Party, I, I'll call them AKP. It's Erdogan is the leader of the AKP and has been president of Turkey since 2014. The AKP is a reaction against a lot of the tendencies I mentioned earlier of Kamalism. The AKP has an affinity for the Ottomans. <coughs> The AKP are more focused on ethnic ethnic Turks than Turkey in the way the Ottomans were. Domestically, what that focus on ethnic Turks looks like is, of course, as you'd imagine, marginalizing and oppressing Kurds, Armenians, other minorities. And then internationally... What this focus on ethnic Turks looks like is supporting and building connections to countries with Turkic people. In fact, if you listen to if you've listened to my show before, the Society Show, Society. you've probably heard the recurring segment called the Libyan Civil War Report. A big part of the Libyan civil war narrative is that Turkey is supporting the government of national accord in western Libya. One element of the Libyan civil war story that I haven't touched on really, and in fact I never particularly see pointed out in the reporting I read, is there's a large Turkish minority in Libya, particularly in the cities controlled by the government of National Accord. West Libya. The Ottoman Empire ruled Libya from 1551 to 1912. During that time, Turks moved to Libya, and now about 15% of the Libyan population is fully Turkish, and then about one, of, one out of four has some Turkish heritage. So I argue that the primary motivation of the Libyan civil war is about access and control of oil. I mean, obviously. But a background element informing the conflict is ethnic tensions between Libyan Turks and Libyan Arabs, as well as probably Berbers and other ethnicities, but I'm not as sure on that. And in fact, that, that tension between 
Libyan Turks and Libyan Arabs is heightened by the fact that it's turned into a proxy war playing out between ethnically Turkish Turkey and ethnically Arab Egypt. Anyway, the AKP wants to and has succeeded in to some extent in turning Turkey's focus away from, you know, civic nationalism to a type of ethnic nationalism. That is not good. What the AKA symbolizes is a shift in Turkey from trying to adhere to European secularism following EU standards, etc. They shifted Turkey to trying to be more of a hegemonic Middle Eastern power rather than an aspiring European power. Turkey is no longer concerned solely with its, you know, domestic nationalist orientation. Turkey sees itself as advancing a broader Turkish interest and this manifests in establishing a government that's more ethnically diverse and less Arab-centric in Libya. Another th angle to look at it is Turkey-Iran relations play heavily into this. On one hand, Turkey and Iran have been cooperating ever since Iran condemned the attempted Turkish coup in 2016. Turkey and Iran were also both on Qatar's side after the diplomatic crisis between Qatar and the UAE. Things like this have alleviated tensions between Turkey and Iran, largely because they both see the other as challenging Arab hegemony in the Middle East. Yet both Turkey and Iran are on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. Iran wants to preserve Assad's multi-ethnic and Shiite-friendly government, while the Turkish government wants a more Sunni-oriented government. At the same time, both are opposed to the radical far-right Islamism like ISIS that is supported by the Saudis, UAE, etc. In other words, if you want to be very... Look at this through an ethnic lens, which helps, but it, it helps. It's not the full picture. A bigger picture would be looking at it from the economic lens because all, all the Middle Eastern conflicts, starting with Saudi Arabia, ultimately fueled by oil. I mean, that's reductive, but I'm at this point, I'm just comparing different ways to be reductive. If you're going to be reductive, it's easier to look at it from an economic lens than an ethnic lens. But if you're going to look at it through an ethnic lens, there's two two conflicts playing out. One is Sunni versus Shiite, and the other is Turks, Arabs, Persians. And then you, uh, you can mix in Kurds, but they don't actually command a state, so it's it's a little more obscure. Turks want some sort of or at least the Turkey state how it's constituted now wants some type of Islamism, but they are also very high on the nation state. And they 
do not want Islamists of the Wahhabist variety that's associated with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, you know, all the, the ISIS types, the type of Islamism that, uh, frankly, Saudi Arabia pays billions to propagate. Turkey doesn't want that, but they also don't want Shiites. They don't want Syria, a neighboring country, to be ruled by Shiites. But they also want Persia, Iran, to undermine the Arabs, countries that advance the far-right Islamist ideology. This is why Middle Eastern con- um, Middle Eastern politics are so damn complicated, people. And I am no expert either. I'm just a guy who reads the internet. But having, you know, gotten that out of the way and then rambled a bit as usual, uh, what do I actually think about Turkey turning Hagia Sophia into a mosque? He's really good looking and he thinks I'm super cool. Personally, I'm about as secular as you can get. Like, I mean, I don't go to, I don't remember the last time I've been in a church. I went as a kid. I have some tendencies to believe in some metaphysical things, like maybe there's a god, I don't know. I'm I'm interested in religion, but I am secular. And for that reason, I support Hagia Sophia remaining a museum. But at the same time, I'm also not an Islamophobe. I don't really care if it's turned into a mosque. I don't feel threatened by it. So, I mean, we'll s- there is something cool about a really freaking old church that became a museum, or came- became a mosque, then became a museum, then became a mosque again. It was built in the Byzantine Empire. There's so much history, and I think there is something powerful about conducting religious worship in a place like that like that that seems like you could actually feel like a spirit running through you not maybe not literally or not literally but you know I've been in super old churches I went to Europe when I was a kid and there's just something different about being in this spectacle inducing just wonder it's like a wonder and you're worshiping god in this wondrous monument that's cool to me even though i'm not muslim and uh nor religious in any particular sense i respect that but so having said all that i would have liked it if it remained a museum but ultimately it doesn't bother me Now, moving on to the next story, next and last story, before I give a little update about the move. Oh, bitch, get out the way. Protests broke out in the Russian Far East, calling for Putin to resign after popular governor Sergei Fergal was arrested for ties to multiple murders in the early 2000s. So, let's get into this. Seems like a big deal. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Protests breaking out in the Russian Far East? 
Not common at all. Calling for Putin to resign? Kind of common, but not that common. Um, a popular governor being arrested for ties to multiple murders. That's that's where the story's like, wow, okay, let's see what... Let's dig in, folks. So, Sergey Fergal is a popular politician, like I said, from the Liberal Democratic Party, which is a minority party in Putin's Russia. I'll go more into the story about the actual arrests and murders, but I have to unpack super basic Russian politics for some context. I've been asked to talk about Russia, and I might talk about Russia. Political parties in Russia, as you could imagine, are different than in the U.S. All of Russia is predominantly controlled by Putin's party, United Russia, um, and then United Russia is part of this, it's called All Russia's People Front, which is like a political co coalition that bolsters Putin and United Russia. Then there's a handful of marginal parties who actually do have some positions of power, but not much. So imagine United Russia, P Putin's party, and the surrounding apparatus, all Russia's People's Front, are like the Republican Party in the United States. But instead of in the U.S., you know, there's maybe 5% of, uh, of Republicans or neo-Nazis, maybe 10%, I don't know. I'd guess 5 to 10% are just straight up neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates, stuff like that. So imagine if in Russia you take out the neo-Nazis, have give them their own smaller parties. And then imagine if, so you take out the neo-Nazis, and then now imagine like 50% of the most centrist Democrats are also Republicans. That is United Russia. It's basically the Republican Party with a little bit of the neo-Nazis teased out, and then a bunch of Democrats added in. So, as you can imagine, it is a immensely huge party. It completely dominates every aspect of Russia. So, and then, so then imagine, instead of the Democratic Party as a sort of opposition party to the Republicans, there was a dozen or so small parties from far left to far right. Um, and to put it into perspective, all Russia's people front has 340 seats out of 450 in the state Duma. So... It's basically 340 for Putin's party, 110 split amongst a bunch of marginal parties. Okay, so now that I've got that out of the way, let me get back to Sergei Fergal being accused of aiding in murders. And that will come up again when I talk more about Sergei Fergal's party specifically, but let me talk about the murder case. Russia's top investigative agency claims that Sergei Fergal is considered, quote, the organizer of an attempted murder and the murder of a number of business people in 20, 2004 and 2005. 
Four members of the organized crime group Fergal is allegedly linked with were previously convicted for their roles in the murders committed in Khabarovsk in the neighboring Amur region. There were reportedly 15 entrepreneurs who were murdered that are connected to the same business crime syndicate. So obviously this was quite the operation going on. Sergey Fergal's supporters claim that he is a political prisoner. That's the main reason they're protesting. They claim the timing is too suspect and opportunistic. And I think, I mean, personally, I think the allegations about his association with murder could be true. I don't, I don't know if they are. I, I don't know either way. But I also believe that even if the allegations are true, he was primarily arrested for political reasons. However... There are elements to the story I haven't talked about yet. I alluded to this a little earlier, but the first thing I want to point out is that Sergei Fergal's party, the Liberal Democratic Party, is a far-right party. Uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? They support Russian ultranationalism. They want to renew the Russian Empire and turn it into a Eurasian Empire. They are vocally and openly pro-imperialism. They want to seize territory previously claimed by Russia at different points in history. Not only that, but despite the Liberal Democratic Party's far-right positioning, and their position as an opposition party, they still frequently support Putin and his party. Because of this, some people think they're secretly supported by the Kremlin. In other words, they're paid opposition. They're the Washington generals. They get paid by Putin to lose and then support what he wants. Sergei Fergal is unique, however, because he seems to take the party line more seriously and rigidly than most. That, which is why people are protesting his arrest so much, and also why he's presumed to be arrested for political reasons. You know, Sergei Fergal kind of comes across as the type of guy who, let's say, you know, Donald Trump goes out there and talks a bunch of crap about... I any choose your group, choose your marginalized group. Trump talks about them, and then you know I imagine the a bunch of Trump's fans go online and take everything Trump said seriously while he's sitting at home, watching like E and or how what's the, the Billy Bush show Hollywood Tonight or whatever, and uh, just like he doesn't believe this shit. You took it seriously. He was just trying to sell you something. You bought in, but then you took it to a whole other level, dude. That's what I think about this Sergey Fergal guy. What do you mean? But the last thing I want to highlight about this story is how it was being covered in the failing New York Times. The New York Times is not even, I don't, 
I barely read it. What a shocker. The New York Times is covering a story in a manipulative and misleading way. I don't... er, I read two different stories about this in the New York Times. And I don't understand what the liberal... Well, after I read the stories, I didn't understand what the liberal Democratic Party stood for. I didn't know what Sergey Fergal stood for. I had to research all of that, okay? And the reason why the New York Times doesn't want to draw attention to the fact that Sergey Fergal is a far-right extremist. I don't even believe this. This is what the Nazis believe. The New York Times needs to publicize the story. And I don't mean need as in they're being forced. I'm saying to justify their ideological cause they need to. Because they need to justify American foreign policy goals. And current American foreign policy goals include delegitimizing and undermining the Putin administration. Russia. Russia hates Russia. 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 Putin. Russia's Russia. 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 But of course, the New York Times can't explain how or why Sergey Fergal and the Liberal Democratic Party is far right wing. They can't talk about that. Too much, I mean, they can a little bit, because most people won't notice if you only do a little bit, because being sympathetic to a far-right authoritarian party undermines the New York Times' attempt to undermine Russia as being authoritarian. In other words, the New York Times' goal is to make Russia look bad, because it advances U.S. foreign policy of aggression towards Russia. The way they are making Russia look bad is by painting them as authoritarian. So they can't, um, they can't also portray this opposition that they're bolstering as authoritarian, even though they're a lot more explicitly authoritarian, at least ideologically. They aren't because they don't have power. Whoever has power actually has the ability to be authoritarian. But they advocate for a more authoritarian Russia. Authoritarians who want to control us so that they can have us silenced. So the first article is about Fergal's arrest. The second article is more about the protests. Both were written by a guy named Andrew Higgins. So the first article characterizes Fergal as, quote, a regional leader long viewed as disloyal, end quote. They then mention how he, quote, took office in 2018 after defeating a Kremlin-endorsed candidate, end quote. Both of these suggest, in the minds of American liberals, uh, that Sergey Fergal is a resistance-type liberal. Liberals need to stand up. The way they're portraying him makes him look like the equivalent of an anti-Trump character, but in Russia, anti-Putin. To Russia gate poison losers who read the New York Times, no one can be more right-wing or authoritarian than Putin. So all they have to say is, this guy's a resistance hero! And, and they're just like, you know, flashing their boobs like it's freaking Woodstock 99. Like, they love this dude. Now I know y'all be loving this shit right here! Yeah, right here! Um... And to be fair, the article does refer to Fergal and the Liberal Democratic Party as far right, 
But it's also conspicuously, like, later on in the article, after all the important details, and in the second article, which I'm about to read or reference, he doesn't mention that at all. He doesn't mention the party standing whatsoever. And this is the more important article because it's longer, has more details, and it's also about the protests. So here are a few quotes from the other New York Times articles to show how they portrayed this far-right figure. Quote, Mr. Fergal, a member of the Liberal Democratic Party of the nationalist rabble-rouser Vladimir Zirinovsky, took office in 2018 after defeating a Kremlin-endorsed candidate, end quote. By the way, they used that Kremlin-endorsed candidate line before, twice. I'm not repeating anything. That's that's a go-to. So, I mean, New York Times vaguely refers to the party's right-wing position by calling it nationalists. Um, and the party is nationalist. But nationalism can mean a lot of things. And New York Times is using that word to obfuscate a more accurate description, which would be, you know, far-right, ultra-nationalist, imperialists, anything like that. But those are no-no words for New York Times. Uh, also, how they describe Zirinovsky as a rabble-rouser, that's a huge understatement. Zirinovsky has made many extremely repulsive comments. He especially has a tendency to threaten violent rape against women, as well as threatening to bomb or destroy other countries, particularly Poland, Ukraine, Turkey, and the Baltic states. States. So already they kind of made this guy seem, they're really banking that you see the word liberal democrat and then you're like, yay, this guy's like anti-Trump, but in Russia, yay, the Kremlin hates him, and his boss is a rabble rouser, that is so cool, that is what they want you to think when you read that. Okay, so um, continuing, continuing from the article, New York Times writes, quote, Despite Sergei Fergal's affiliation with a party scorned by Russian liberals as a collection of crackpots and crooks, he has now been embraced by many Kremlin critics as a victim of political repression by Mr. Putin. End quote. So, for one, it's obviously reductive again it's very obfuscating to refer to a far-right party as quote crackpots and crooks because although that may certainly be true most politicians are crooks i welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook well i'm not a crook and it's a small point, but, like, them being crackpots and crooks, uh, that's, that's like, a, a fifth thing you mentioned, eighth thing you mentioned, tenth. It's not that important. The more important thing is it's a far-right political party. Like, calling a politician a crook, that, that's literally not saying anything. They're all freaking crooks. We know that. Grow up. You're all bitches. Everybody's a bitch. 
So it's it's just more obfuscation and considering that the Liberal Democratic Party has a far right or- orientation it would actually be a bad thing if Russian liberals were rallying around him. They say it like it's a good thing, like, oh, this guy might be a crook, but now liberals love him. Well, liberals really shouldn't freaking like this guy. He sucks. You suck. Another thing that happens in both the articles is Andrew Higgins refers to political figures who are supposed to symbolize the left, but aren't actually left-wing figures. They're merely pro-American figures. Like, he'll be like, oh, the liberal left loves this guy. He's a symbol now. He's really beloved by the liberals. Um, But, so, in the first article he wrote, quote, Konstantin Kalachev, a political analyst who used to work for the ruling United Russia Party, said, Mr. Frugal's arrest so many years after his purported crime was, quote, an unequivocal signal, end quote, to all candidates in upcoming gubernatorial elections, end quote. What they don't mention is this Konstantin Kalachev guy that they're elevating to some like face of Russian liberals he support this guy supported Putin at first because he assumed Putin would be a pro-western neoliberal but he left Putin when he realized that Putin wasn't interested in capitulating to Western demands. So this guy that New York Times is elevating is basically just Putin who wants to cooperate with the U.S. Which, I mean, that is American foreign policy goals. They want they don't care who's in charge. It could be ISIS. That's why the U.S. enabled ISIS against Syria. As long as they'll cooperate with the U.S., they're the good guy. This guy, this Konstantin Kalachev joker, he's not a liberal. Certainly not a leftist. He's a right-wing neoliberal who basically wants Putin but more friends with the United States. In the second article... Uh, when New York Times writes about Russian liberals embracing this dude, he really only means one liberal, and he's not even that liberal. So he he writes, quote, Alexei A. Navalny, a Moscow-based anti-corruption campaigner and Russia's most prominent opposition leader, cheered Saturday's protests in the Far East hailing the street demonstration as the, quote, biggest in the city's history. Mr. Navalny tweeted a video of the protests and a message of support. Far East, we are with you, end quote. What the New York Times doesn't tell you is that Alexei A. Navalny is the only evidence they have of liberal support. And the guy is by no means left-wing. He's literally a centrist, neoliberal technocrat who is pro-West. New York Times is propping him up, and consequently propping up a far-right political party 
that has his you know indirect support because their goals all of their goals of undermining the current Russian administration align all of this is to say you know obviously I'm not defending Putin Sergei Fergal may or may not have been involved with the murders, but either way, I mean, he still was probably arrested for politically motivated reasons, so I'm not defending Putin. My goal is to point out that the New York Times is indeed what they call fake news. You are fake news. But that narrative, the fake news narrative, is completely claimed by conservatives. Conservatives think New York Times is fake news because they have a centrist liberal slant and cover things exactly and don't cover things exactly how Trump wants them covered. In reality, the reason New York Times is fake news you are fake news is because they have to justify American foreign policy positions. And if you're justifying American foreign policy positions, you will often have to obscure facts and frame issues in a completely backwards way. Not only that, the reason they have the illusion of being liberal is because conservatives don't need to be convinced of U.S. foreign policy. You could tell them they're... You're, bombing Timbuktu and uh, they'd be like yay those people deserve it yay when they've like never even heard wherever you're talking about what are you talking about what are you talking about conservatives don't need to have their consent manufactured liberals do liberals have little t twangs of guilt about uh, the U.S. just being the most violent war machine in world history. They don't like to think about that. That's what the New York Times is for. Shh, it's okay, it's okay. We have the smart people in charge. They won't kill anyone too good. They're mostly killing bad people, don't worry. And it's... All the people deserve it. Even if they might seem innocent, you know, they actually kind of deserved it. So, shh. Uh, don't worry about American foreign policy. Those evil brown people won't hurt you. That's what the New York Times does. That was undeniable proof that we totally owned you, lamers. And this is not the first time the New York Times and other ideological state apparatuses have obfuscated the far-right nature of groups that oppose Russia. In 2015, the U.S. gave military support to the Azov Battalion, an anti-Russian neo-Nazi Ukrainian group. In t later on in 2015, U.S. Congress voted to disallow funding and training to go to neo-Nazi groups. So they instead went to groups that work with the Azov Battalion but aren't as explicitly neo-Nazi. However, even this amendment was removed in 2016, and the Azov Battalion reported in 2017 they were still getting support from U.S. military. White people are the devil! But if you read the New York Times or any conventional mainstream American news, you would likely have no idea how intrinsically linked the U.S. State Department and military are to neo-Nazi groups internationally. 
cannot, I cannot on my daughter's birthday believe that you would sit there and do some crap. Anyway, I've ranted enough about this today, folks, and I gotta be honest, halfway through, not halfway through, but towards the end of recording this, I realized my microphone got unplugged and I had to re-record some parts. Hey, what happened? But I'm gonna end the show with some information about the future of the society show. Society. I will be moving next week from Philadelphia to Seattle. I'm listening. I'm not moving directly into my new apartment. I'll be seeing family for about a week or so first, then moving in, then getting settled, what have you. So, I would not expect a new episode of The Society Show until August 5th at the latest, which is... or. I'm sorry, August 5th at the earliest. So that's two weeks from now. That's really not that long. I've gone two weeks without releasing episodes um, for, for a, 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 like many times. The difference is it may not be that August 5th day. It might be later that week or it might even be the week that starts on the 10th. The reason I can't commit to a date, and I'm very happy about this, is the Society Show is going to be moving to two episodes a week. Right now, I release episodes on Wednesday, but if I'm doing two episodes a week, I think either Monday or Friday or Tuesday or Friday would be a better release schedule. We shall see. I might not be doing two episodes a week as soon as I move. I might take a, a minute to get the hang of it, but that is where we're going, folks. And I gotta be honest, I've reached out to a lot of people to be guests on the show. Have a lot of great ideas for segments. I've really been saving up a lot of my really big ideas until after the move. Because I think the show is about to get off the hook. Once I start implementing my, my big ideas. My brain is still in recovery mode from taking in so many high-level important ideas. So, having said all that, check out The Society Show on YouTube. The easiest way to get to The Society Show YouTube is by going to twitter.com. The Society Show account is at society underscore show. There's a link to the YouTube there. Be sure to follow the Twitter account while you're there um, to be updated. Like I said on the YouTube channel, there's not only every episode, but by the time you're hearing this, there should be every like every clip from every episode separated out into its own video. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Christian. I Z cool. Christian is cool. Is is spelled I Z. Thank you for listening to the second season of the Society Show. This is the finale. And the new Society Show Theater is gonna be absolutely off the hook. So thank you for listening to the Society Show. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. On the next Arrested Development.
The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I wear undergarments underneath my clothing for religious purposes. Dude, your dog's a stoner. Thank you very much, and now I'm going to pay my respects to a very, very special place. Thank you very much. That is nasty. As a man who looks like he bathes in Cheeto dust.